the sounds of Betamax on uh, the brand new episode of In Love With The Process. Love this band, don't you guys? If you haven't heard the episode, I have him on the show. We talk about this song. We talk about this stuff. Make sure you go back and find it. If I had done my prep, I'd tell you what fucking episode number it is. But uh, that's your job. Go figure it out. All right. Hi. Welcome to the show. Come in. Have a seat. Uh, today was supposed to be a catch-up episode, but I think it's going to be more than that. Because my uh, buddy Stu is in town. Hi, Stu. Hello, hello. There he is. Uh, Stu is in town uh, to promote uh, his uh, festival, his film festival. Is this a premiere for you? Yeah, this is a this is the premiere, which is very exciting. Nice, his film Pizzagate. Yes. Which we're going to talk about on today's show. I'm fucking pumped for you, dude. Thank you. What's the film festival? So this is uh, Dances with Films. Uh, it's the second time I've been in this particular festival. Uh, it was one of my favorites last time I was on the festival circuit. Out here in L.A., they uh-huh. do all of their films at the Chinese Theater, which is super cool, iconic. That's fucking... So is your thing in a screen at the Chinese Theater? Yeah, yeah. Fuck yeah, dude. That's awesome, man. Thank you. I don't think I've... This, me going to your screening may be the first time I've been to the Chinese Theater, actually. No kidding. I have not. Like, there was an opportunity to go see Top Gun there, which I missed. And then we just haven't dragged our asses down there to use. I, I'm excited because we haven't been there yet. Yeah, it's it's very exciting. Uh, last time I went, it was an unbelievably good experience. It's been a very long time. It's been a long time since I've been on the festival circuit. Yes. So kind of, you know, this level of introduction uh, is, is cool. Yeah, man. I'm excited for you, dude. <clears throat> um, We'll get into that, but... Uh, I feel like I just saw you. Oh, right. I saw you when you were, you had your layover from Japan. Yes. Yeah, dude, you just did like an epic Japan trip, right? Oh, my goodness. Yeah, well, I was there for a month, uh, which was just incredible. Oh, you it was, went was everywhere. Oh, yeah. It was following a very long stint of work. So after that, it was, it was the vacation that was needed. I mean, I don't know if I'd like to admit how much ramen I ate, but <laughs> it was... <laughs> very unhealthy don't think i didn't notice that you're wearing a godzilla shirt as you came in here today too yeah. uh yes that might be by design knowing <laughs> how much you like godzilla i did actually think about it i was like well i think pet you appreciate this yeah no i i got it man I, as soon as you walked in i clocked that <laughs> you you were also sending me all these really cool uh images and uh posts about the godzilla island where you can zip line down into the mouth of godzilla yeah, you can't. Unfortunately, I didn't have enough time to do that. But there's all sorts of like websites dedicated to all the places you can see Godzilla in Japan. So cool. And of course, I mean, that was just open on my phone at all times <laughs> to try to hit up as many as humanly possible. <laughs> I love that there's so much culture and so much great food and so much great history in Japan. And then we're sitting here going like, yeah, but where are all the places that you can find Godzilla? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, every time I went to one, I think I made it a point to be like, oh. Petty's got to see this too. Yeah, dude. <laughs> I'm jealous. I I want to do a Japan run, man. It sounds amazing, and the food looked amazing. Uh, it absolutely was. I mean, that was 
probably top of my bucket list for a very long time. And Japan was actually closed until this fall. I mean, this fall was the first time you could go. Oh, no shit. Yeah, so, you know, it was um, very, very busy. I mean, there was a lot of tourists. There was a lot of activities that were just booked out months and months in advance. But, you know, it was it was absolutely worth it. I mean, me and a bunch of friends went. Um, it was kind of a rotating group of people. And, I mean, it was just one of the best travel experiences I've had. Wasn't uh, the catalyst for you going there like a specific restaurant that you wanted to go to? Uh, potentially. <laughs> I, I may have flown halfway across the world, <laughs> admittedly for restaurant reservations. <laughs> that, so that, cool. that did happen. <laughs> so cool. What was, the play? what was the spot? Do you want to talk about it? Sure, yeah. So uh, Noma uh, from Copenhagen, Denmark, they were doing uh, a residency in the Ace Hotel in Kyoto. Mm -hmm. And uh, a couple of my friends are on like the Ace Hotel mailing list. And I have two very good friends. And they both, the day that the mailing list came out, they both emailed me within an hour of each other, just because they know I'm just a total restaurant nutcase. They said, (laughs) well, I mean, this looks like a really good idea halfway across the world. (laughs) And the fact that they both emailed me within an hour of each other, I thought, well, maybe maybe this is something that we should consider. Yeah. And we joked about it for a very long time before the reservations opened. And it was one of those jokes that slowly became more and more serious to the point where we started thinking, maybe maybe we should actually do this. And And it turned out that it timed out with the ending of one of the shows that we were on. And we thought, actually, actually, maybe we can do this. So, you know, the, the joke turned into a little bit of a reality and we were looking it up and we realized that the restaurant reservations came up at 2.30 in the morning. Uh, I was in L.A. at the time. The other two folks I was, you know, interested in going with, they were also in L.A. at the time. We're like, oh, are we really going to get up at 2.30 in the morning? And we were on a project, and my friend said, well, well, I'm going to be up at 2.30 in the morning anyway. I have to open base camp, so I'll, I'll take a look. Um, and it was actually probably fortuitous because he was up at two thirty in the morning and nobody else was, so he couldn't even double check and ask, you know, any second opinions. Uh, we kind of all woke up to the message from him saying, "Yeah, I got six tickets." <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and th- there was a cancellation policy that was, you know, forgiving to the point where if all of a sudden it turned out that we couldn't go, I mean, we could still cancel, but yeah, but that was the catalyst. Yeah, I mean, well, then now we had the tickets, so. Yeah. Then we totally had to start looking at flights and all these other things. But yeah, yeah. restaurant reservations <laughs> were the like impetus stimul- that us yeah. out there. Stimulated what? How long were you out there? Like a month? A month, yeah. That's yeah, not crazy. everybody was able to go for a month. But I went out uh, I went out for a month and then kind of different people showed up. And then we all met in Kyoto. Mm-hmm. And we were all there at the same time to eat food. So <laughs> fucking cool, man. So fucking cool. We talked a bit about this before. You don't speak Japanese, so you were... Oh, no, not at all. Yeah. And it's one of those cultures that they do speak English there to a certain extent, correct? But it's very different than anything that you'll see on in our country as far as like signage is concerned and even inflection is concerned. Yeah, it's it's actually um, not that many people do speak English. I mean, we were, really? we were really saved by Google Translate. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I was shocked at the amount of times I had my phone out pointing my camera at signs and, you know, I mean, it's... Probably more than it was in the past, but uh, generally speaking, not a lot of English speakers, but everybody there was incredibly friendly. There is a large desire to kind of help you out, even if there's a language barrier and people do spend 
a lot of time and energy, you know, trying to make sure that you are, you know, taken care of and you're enjoying your time when you're there. I mean, just the people that we interacted with were just beyond nice and accommodating and friendly. Um, so nice, man. That's awesome. I'm excited. Like, I, I definitely want to go. Highly recommend it. I definitely want to go. I know my dad. I, my dad listens to the show. I know you're listening. We should do Japan. You know, screw mom. She doesn't need to go. We should go do Japan. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, uh, I, I'm, I'm jealous, man. I'm very jealous. And for those of you who haven't heard the app, Stu's been on the show. You've been on the show multiple times at this point. Yeah. I mean, we had one original episode. I as well did not do my homework. It's, I think it's like in the 40s. I think it's almost 200 episodes ago. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, and Stu's been an assistant director for years, a director for years. Yeah. Um, and so when you're hearing this story and you're like, well, it must be nice. Well, you've been on shows in movies for about three years straight. <laughs> oh, yeah. Point, dude. Yeah. Like massive. Are we allowed to talk about anything because trailers are out? Uh, I mean, yes and no. I mean, the the answers are largely going to be NDA, 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 which might make it a little bit boring. But yeah, I mean, we can we can talk about what it is. I just don't know that I can provide specifics. <laughs> I mean, but much fun information. I mean, so I'll say something. Uh, I did see the trailer for Rebel Moon. Yep, yeah, that's that's the one. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, you know, we, we, we can talk about the fact that, yes, that, that was the show that brought me to L.A. last time I was here. I mean, like I said, I can't really yeah, but you you came it. You came to L.A. thinking that you were just going to be here for like a month or so, right? Um, yeah, it was kind of a little bit up for debate. I mean, I came out. Um, it did turn into eight months in L.A. It's crazy. Uh, <laughs> it's crazy. It's crazy. It's crazy. Um, but yeah, this was the, this was the second unit of the show. And you, as you're kind of, you're working on a project and you're trying to figure out the scale of something, second unit is something that is, that can get larger and smaller over the course of the development of a project. And, you know, we knew that there was a certain degree of work to do. And then, you know, as you progress, you kind of realize there's more things that the second unit can do. And yeah, it ended up being quite a long stint but i mean which was fantastic it was a blast i loved yeah. every second of it yeah yeah so you were ad on the second on second unit right yeah yeah and that's gonna be pretty crazy man like organizing all the stunt dudes and because second unit mostly it's just like pickups and stunt works right yeah it's, it's a lot of the action you know or like visual effects oriented things um and you know because the project kind of as you kind of keep shooting you keep you realize Oh well, you know, second unit can pick up this or pick up that, and it is. It can sometimes be a process that evolves and changes over the course of a production, you know, based on progress. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of adaptation. There's a lot of okay, well, you know, main you didn't didn't get this piece, or actually, you know, what? Hold on a second, maybe they can get that piece. So it is a lot of working as you go, which mm -hmm. is fun and exciting but also a degree of challenge when all of a sudden you realize there's something on your plate that you didn't realize was going to be on it <laughs> hours ago but then you must also it must be an interesting game of like what sets come down what sets stay up you know like oh yeah yeah like this set was supposed to originally come down but they missed all these shots so we got to get in there and bang out these shots oh yeah and you're sharing actors and stunt people and and costumes and crew and everything and you know that's the the negotiation of oh we, we, we'd love this person. We, we need this, this, this player for, for a couple hours. I, oh, no, no, hang on a second. They, you can't have them. And then your whole day gets blown up. And then you, you try to figure out something to shoot. And I mean, that there's a lot of that. 
um, across all the kind of various second units. You know, over my career, um, recently a lot of the work that I have been doing is second unit, which can really be a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you get to all the blowing up shit, all the fun stuff. And for those for those of you who listen to the show and you don't necessarily work in the business, second unit is essentially a second team that is a director, uh, like a whole other second unit, a whole other second crew that is there to pick up everything that the first unit director can't get. So like the main director of the movie may specifically his or her main task is just working and getting as much done with the talent as possible, right? Traditionally speaking, yes. Yes. And then oftentimes the action and like the heavy duty action sequences, or if there's a car chase sequence, maybe you shoot all the talent that's in the vehicle, you do all that stuff. And then when it's time for the cars to actually be chasing each other and flipping and rolling, you throw that to a second unit team, which oftentimes is, and I've talked about it on the show with other guests, uh, like Wade Eastwood, oftentimes that's being directed by a stunt coordinator too, right? In the business. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Um, like one of the things that I can talk about because it's out is I also did second unit on Army of the Dead. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that we did a lot of on that was we did a lot of the big resets. So for example, if you're going to shoot a bunch of zombie gore and there's blood that's going to get everywhere and you need to clean it up if you're going to do another take and, you know, it's set, it takes an hour to squib everything up and get everything ready and then you blow something up and then you have to clean it up and try again and change costumes and wardrobe. You know, second unit traditionally also has a smaller crew. Mm -hmm. So if there's going to be a lot of waiting time in between your various setups, that is something that'll go to second unit. Because it's Um, not costing as much because there isn't as big of a crew sitting around waiting for everything. That's correct. Yeah. Or if it's like a location shot, like if you guys need to go somewhere that's really far away and you can do it with a smaller crew that can go to second unit or if there's aerial things like uh another one thing i've seen second unit used for a lot is to literally stay out of your own shot you know if you have a drone shot or helicopter or something like that and you want to retain a very small footprint and that's all you're doing for the day then you head out there with a very small crew and then you can you can hide yeah (laughs) because there's not as many of you it's got to be a lot of fun actually you know, because, I mean, the days must be, are the, are the days as intense as first unit? It depends on what you're shooting. I mean, it absolutely can be. Yeah. I mean, you know, what are the things that I've run into in the past shooting second unit, which I always find fascinating is, you know, you'll shoot a scene and then the main unit will come in. And like, for example, I worked on this project and we were shutting down a bridge outside of New York City and the main unit came in and they shut down the bridge and they did all the stuff with the cast. And then we kind of took over to shut down the same bridge and we did a, you know, a bunch of work with stunt doubles, but the, you know, the producers were like, Oh, well you're, you're the second unit. You need less resources. And I was like, well, I mean, <laughs> sort same, of same thing though. <laughs> we're, we're still shutting down the bridge. That's still happening. You know, like we don't need the same hair makeup infrastructure because we don't have the cast. That being said, we are still shutting down the bridge. <laughs> that's, that's not not happening. So, um, yeah, you know, and even then it's kind of a negotiation because they are generally built to be smaller or more nimble or built to wait or whatever it is. And you really kind of need to go through and figure out what are the things that you need to succeed. Yeah. Because um, there is some things that you don't need. Yeah. It's interesting. I've I've never been in a position yet. I've never been in a position where I've directed something that I've had second unit. And I talked to, when I hung out with Carnahan and I went over and was able to watch him edit and do this whole bit. And he was showing me all his second unit footage. And 
was watching him sort of scrub through the second unit stuff. And I've talked to uh, a bunch of directors. It's always fascinating being a person that is shooting a movie, finding that second unit director that you trust, and then seeing uh, folks that work with second unit directors that they haven't worked with before, and they're just sort of going through the bin and the edit room and being like, a fucking angle on this thing. <laughs> so for me, it's like, it's very nerve wracking. I would almost want to have one of my friends that knows my style be a second unit director for me more than anything else. And I guess, unless it was like a heavy duty action movie and you were real close with the stunt coordinator, that makes a lot of fucking sense. Cause Oh yeah, absolutely. Those, those guys are like uh, are stunt prevising a lot of that stuff, anyways. Yeah, you can you can stunt viz, you can previs. There's storyboards. There's all sorts of different ways to make sure that everything's going to cut together. I mean, sometimes even you get a like a cut where there's slug lines that are put in. It's like, oh, okay, well we need this piece or that piece. It kind of just depends on the sequence and the best way to go about it. But yeah, there's absolutely all sorts of ways to make sure that that every that folks are on the same page. I mean you have more meetings than you can possibly imagine to try to do that. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, here we are in the film industry and it's just meeting upon meeting upon meeting. Yeah. You'd be amazed how many meetings there are. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you know, it's all in the service of trying to make sure that the director of photography is on the same page because if you have a main unit director of photography and a second unit director of photography, they need to be shooting in the same way. The lighting... I mean, sometimes it even comes down to, oh, well, main unit shot this portion of the sequence at 9 in the morning... You now need to do exactly the same to make sure that the sun's in the same position and the shadows are the same. And all of a sudden you go, oh, it was sunny for them. You look at the schedule and it's meant to be cloudy and you go, geez, I don't know if we can shoot. I mean, it Mm. it, it comes down to Mm. all of that information. And it's so funny. The the amount of the, and that's what's interesting about being an assistant director because the amount of management and scheduling and and chaos that you're sort of sorting through to essentially make sure the continuity is correct between one shot and the next shot so that the audience doesn't sit there and go like why is it fucking nighttime right in between like these two cuts and and so your job is crazy just to make sure that that continuity exists sure yeah i mean it's a it's a team effort with everybody it's the director of photography it's the script supervisor um mm-hmm. who you i know had on recently she's I mean, great yeah so i mean it, it's it's it is a it's a combination it's a team effort and you kind of go through and you everything you do you talk to the costume department hair makeup Sometimes it's the cast. The cast is going to go, oh, yeah, well, when I walked into this room, I was holding the prop in my right hand. And you go, okay. And, then, <laughs> and uh, yeah, editorial, VFX. I mean, you just have to make sure that everything's on the same page as much as possible. So, again, so it appears seamless. Yeah, so that you would never know. And so that, you know, because the director gets all the credit. So at the end of the day, you're sitting there watching you know, Army of the Dead, and you're like, Zach shot all these shots, you know, and you're like, wow. And, and yeah. he was also the, wasn't that the first time that he was the cinematographer on it as well? Yeah, I mean, he'd done it before earlier in his career, you know, in a commercial career, but in terms of like one of the, the bigger movies recently, yes. Yeah, yeah, which is insane. Which yes. Which is crazy. Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. It's crazy, man. I, I'm always impressed when you do these large movies, and I, we we get to talk off, off the record about like crazy <laughs> stuff. And I, I'm... Like, I I love living vicariously through that experience for you, because as a director, you never get to see that shit. You never get to see the big, the big, big. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the, you know, one of the things that I feel very lucky being an AD for is that I get to see other directors work. And you just, you don't 
get to do that all that often as a director. Often you're the only one that's there, and this is something that we talked about on our previous episode approximately a million years ago, <laughs> is that that's not something that you always see. And I, I don't know that... When I, when I first started becoming an AD, I, don't, I didn't understand. I didn't realize how lucky I was going to be to be able to watch other people work in that respect and just... to oh. I mean, this is something that I never thought of, that what incredible this idea is, and that's something that then I can take and bring to my own projects. And I mean, Mm -hmm. I just cannot believe how haphazardly I lucked into that sort of experience. Yeah, man. Because of all of that toolbox that you're building with everybody everybody else's budgets, the toolbox (laughs) that you're building is is amazing, man. That's amazing. yeah, and you've worked for some of the greats, man. You've done stuff for Fincher. You've done stuff for some of the biggest boys in the business. So you get to yeah. sneak in there and get to shit, man. And we met uh, originally because uh, Cruda shot your stuff. Yep. So we both are, you know, ex ex wives of Cruda at this point. I mean, ex. I, I saw Cruda this week. <laughs> I saw him a couple of weeks. Ago. I know. <laughs> I haven't I haven't shot with him in a while. But um, yeah, man. Um, and then when I did a screening of uh, 12 Cam back in Boston, one of the few screenings I did in the theater, we had you screen your movie Megram in front of that. Yeah. Well, which was fun. That was the first time we met Matt. I think. Yeah. That, and that was a total blast. I mean, yeah, I, I, that was one of the first theatrical experiences from a Grimm as well. So like, yeah, I mean, and I had no idea. I hadn't seen, you know, the, the full 12 KM yet. I'd only seen the, the, the screen grabs and, you know, I think that, again, I think I told this story before, but I remember talking to Cruda and saying, hey, I, I think I saw a trailer for this thing. It's like, can, can, can you work on making these th- this short that I'm doing look like that? And he goes, well, yes, of course I can. I shot it. <laughs> Was that 12K? <laughs> yes. Oh, that's funny. That's funny. He gets a lot of credit for my work on that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And for those of you who are still asking... To watch 12 cam i have been making my way through all of the dms i just checked i i have since november sent out over forty thousand DMs. oh my goodness yeah so i am uh, getting through them a lot of new people are getting stuff and we just had it uh translated to italian so there is italian subtitles with the hopes that we will go viral in italy so those of you italian listeners that want to see 12 cam in italian uh, it will be available next week. Ah, congratulations. Thanks, man. It was pretty cool. I had uh, uh, one of our fans of the show do all the translations for me. So, Oh, that's very cool. Yeah, it's very cool. Every once in a while. Every once in a while, you listeners are cool. Every once in a while. Um, so let's talk about Pizzagate. Yeah. Um, so this was a project. Uh, it's something that I kind of came up with during the pandemic. Um, I was out of work like Everybody. many, many other people were, and... I, as much as I can, I try to do my own projects on the side, and this was a great opportunity to try to prep something because I wasn't on set as an AD. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was prepping uh, a TV series at the time, but all we could really do is schedule and, and reschedule and <laughs> schedule yet again and kind of make something, uh, <laughs> essentially schedule it to death. But um, I was able to prep something, and I was trying to find something that I could do with a very small crew. Uh, because I did want to do it, it you know, completely independently produced, but I wanted to do something where we could do 
we could make it right. We, we could actually do COVID testing. We could do masks. We could do all of the things that were required of a production at the time. Mm-hmm. And I mean, everything that I do is essentially self-financed. So I was trying to figure out, well, what can I do with five people? Mm-hmm. I really want to do something, but it needs to be at a scale that I can do. And I that's, was, that's interesting. So you're setting up the restrictive fence to play in at that point. Yeah, and and I mean, essentially, out of necessity, and also, you know, the combination of I have some time to put a project together, plus what, you know, what are my limitations with something that I can do right now? And as I was kind of thinking of different ideas, I watched a PBS special, a frontline special called The United States of Conspiracy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And within that actual, you know, within the frontline episode, there was a moment where they were talking about the Pizzagate conspiracy. And as I was watching it, I thought, oh my goodness, this happened in 2016, and I had really only tangentially heard of it. So maybe there are people that are listening to the show that don't have any idea. Is there like the Cliff Notes version of what the Pizzagate <laughs> conspiracy is about? Sure. Yeah, so <laughs> the uh, the Cliff Notes version is, is it was a conspiracy theory, and basically it... A bunch of emails were released by WikiLeaks from John Podesta, and there was a whole bunch of communication between him and this pizza place called Comic Ping Pong in uh, Washington, D.C., <laughs> and a conspiracy theory was developed that when they were ordering pizzas, oh, you know, your cheese pizza, or that it was actually code for child pedophilia. <laughs> And it was kind of propagated by Alex Jones and a bunch of conspiracy theorists. And it really gained some traction with the QAnon crowd. And it got so prolific that this guy uh, drove from Salisbury, North Carolina, 350 miles, armed to the teeth to try to rescue children from a basement of a building, of the basement of a building that doesn't have a basement. (laughs) Jesus Christ, dude. And, you know, it's this thing where I looked at it and it's like, all right, well, I can't believe I've only sort of heard of it. Like, I'd heard of the conspiracy theory, but I didn't realize that somebody had acted on it. Hmm. And I thought that that was something that this is a story that needs to be told or, or needs to be clarified. And much of his journey was in a car. Hmm. And I thought, well, maybe... Maybe that's something I can do with five people is I can see what I can do to recreate the journey in a car. And that's, that was kind of the jumping off point where I thought, all right, well, how, how do I tell this story? What, what mm-hmm. do I do with it? And how can I do with it with the, you know, with the scale and limitations that I have? So the moment that you saw that on the dock that you're watching, you had that aha moment, right? Yes. Those always feel fucking great when you find something and you're like, oh, shit. Right, and it starts to shimmer and sparkle in some way, and you're like, maybe this could be a fucking thing that we do, right? Yeah, yeah, I love those moments, man. When you stumble on something, and you're like, can I make this? Yeah, well, and it, it was a big question. I mean, I've never made a docudrama before. That's not usually what I what I make. I usually make horror and thriller projects, mm-hmm. and you know, this was a little slice of real world horror. I feel like, <laughs> um, which mm-hmm. mean you know, kind of has the same you know tone of a lot of the other things that I've done, but. This was also going to be a completely new experience. I, I don't, I didn't necessarily know what I was doing, and I had to spend a lot of time and research figuring out what might be the best way to tell this story. Mm-hmm. That's rad, man. That's super cool. I love. See, I'm always fascinated with those like 
those key points because everybody, I know a lot of you listening are like, I want to make something. I don't know what I want to make. I got to do this. And, and, uh, you know, in the past I have been guilty of like forcing myself to try to find something. And I find that whenever I'm like hard hunting for something to do, I never find it. And it's always when I relax and I go, oh, I don't give a fuck, you know, and I just sort of walk away and I do something or I hear a story or I talk to someone and I go, oh, that's interesting. And it like, like the air smells different when I hear something like that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, I'm the exact same way. I don't know that I could force myself to come up with a project, but I mean, I have a in the notes app on my phone. I have a giant collection of things that just. You go through a life experience or you see something and you go, wait, wait, hang on. Mm-hmm. There might be something here. Mm-hmm. And I just write it down. And then, you know, they have different levels of interest. Something you write down and you go, oh, well, you know, maybe I'll vi- revisit this at some point. But when I saw this, I was like, I need to do this right now. It mm-hmm. is so topical. It's so important. I mean, we were going into 2020. We were going to the election. And I mean, everything fake news, propaganda. I mean, it was just on the forefront yeah. of our living of our experience and i was i i had to do everything i could to try to to put it together so cool man so cool yeah yeah and it's it's interesting as you talk about you know making a list of these these life experiences it's it's the the longer i've been doing this the more i realize how valuable that list is and you know 12 cams a really great example where i had heard about um the russian drill team years prior to that like the actual Kola peninsula and the events that it's loosely based on and when i heard about it i was like man it's so cool that'd be a cool kind of like the thing kind of movie but i'm like why would i who, who gives a shit like why would i make this thing why would i do this uh and it wasn't until later when i had the head injury and the life experiences with like losing the inner voice and sort of going through all that that i was sort of sitting there going like how can i tell us a, a quick sort of uh, prologue to what this adventure would be. And I went, oh, that fucking Russian thing. And, and so like, just having that written down somewhere and just being able to go through your notes and saying like, how, what did I realize? I got in a fight with, with Gina one day and we, we felt this way. That's fucking cool. And and even with the new project, uh, which none, no one's seen, you saw it. You saw Come yeah. Home. You saw the new one. And le- that that was Lance and I essentially... Lance was so great uh, because I, you know, I've talked about this on the show and we've talked about this. I ended up in a state of depression after prepping a movie and having that movie literally ready to go and then having the carpet pulled out from underneath me in a real shitty way by some fucking assholes. <laughs> um, <laughs> tell, tell everybody how you really feel. <laughs> yeah. But uh, so then, you know, the, the plunge into depression after that. And it was the combination of, of having the show and still talking to creatives, which saved me. And then it was finding Judith Weston's books on like working with actors and like realizing, you know, that my directing style uh, prior to reading that book was like, <laughs> you know, 35% of what a director should be doing. And so I was so inspired by that book. And then Lance was also reading that book. And if you guys go listen to the show with Judith Weston on the show and you'll hear me and Lance talking to her right after that show, the both of us were like, this is fucking incredibly inspiring. And so when he came to me and he said, look, we got to do something together. And and Lance has famously been in all my movies. He's never shown, I've never shown his face. It's a big fucking joke. And he's like, you know, we got to do something. And I said, all right, let's just shoot a fucking scene and let's, 
integrate the stuff that we have learned through Judith Weston and let's talk about character building. And um, we really developed the character that he plays in that piece. It took us, I'd say, five months of just communication and talking and and deciding like what would be an interesting character for us to play with and what is an interesting story for for men right now in our current environment in which you're supposed to be in touch with your feelings and you're supposed to be um, a lot more uh, emotional about stuff and and you know how can we tell the story of a guy trying to grapple with all this stuff but also still maintain control over his reality and that all just sort of came about from like these little moments like judith weston's book going like oh wouldn't it be fucking great if we did this and i was trying to force it prior to that i had people come by we did a couple scenes based on pre-existing scripts and none of it really felt right um but uh yeah man it's those little like sparks that like show up yeah and if it turns out really well lance gets to show his face yeah, it did turn out well. And his face is all over it. His face, it was, a, I, I'm sure he'll blush when I say this story. Um, I said to him as a uh, actor, I think I could talk about this. I said to him as an actor, I said, look, the cool thing about us doing this short is that because of where I am right now in the business, um, we don't have to rely on film festivals. We don't have to rely on anything. Like, the management and the agents are excited about the next project. This will go to them. And now that I have connections with dudes like at Scott Free and all these places, this will go to them. So I said to him, like, it's like your work is so fucking great that these guys will now know who you are. And he was like, wow. And I said, so you're, you're actually going to go out to these folks. And um, so he really put 110% into the piece. And I was hanging out with uh, one of the dudes from Scott Free. He called me up and he's like, let's get beers because they always want to hang out. So I was like, yeah, let's get beers. And and so they had seen Come Home. They had seen it and they liked it. And so uh, I call up Lance. <laughs> Blow up his shit. I call up Lance and I say to him, uh, hey, I'm going to have uh, beers with uh, the dudes from Scott Free. You should come. And I said to him, like, these are one of those moments where you should just come because they've seen the short. And he goes, okay, okay. So, and I called him, it was a couple hours later. So we go to this brewery and uh, it's just me and one of my buddies from over there who all have on the show and we'll talk about it. But uh, we go to hang out, we're just having beers and he brings it, like, he's got this massive fucking dog. He's got like this... I don't even know what they're called, uh, but it's like those old school dogs that would carry like the bottle of elixir around their neck, like those giant like rescue dogs. I don't Saint even, Bernard. Saint Bernard, yeah, it's like a big dog, it's like a fucking bear. It's got this big bear, and we're in this outside brewery, and uh, Lance, <laughs> Lance shows up a little late. And he comes in and he's all nervous, and he comes over and he's just like, "Hey, how's it going? What's happening?" He's dressed nice and he's got all this stuff. And he's like, "I'll buy you some beers," and he goes over to buy beers and. He comes down and we just have this conversation. We just talk. And uh, I just introduce him as my buddy Lance. I just say, hey, this is my buddy Lance. And so we have this conversation. And at one point, uh, the guy that we're having beers with just goes, I, I know you. He says to him, I know you. I know your face. And Lance goes, yeah. And he goes, you were just in the fucking Mike's New Piece, right? And he goes, yeah. And he goes, oh, you were great. So then that was the connection. And afterwards, Lance was like, I was really nervous when we went to the thing. I go, I told you, man, th this is the best place that you can possibly be in as an actor. And that's how you want to be introduced to people is you want your work to come front 
front and center, and then be able to sit down and have beers with someone and have them go, I've seen you before. And I said, that's the, the highest form of like introduction and compliment that you want in this business. And he was very happy with it, very excited. So if anything, the piece did its job for him at this point. So I'm happy about that. Hopefully it leads to him getting some more work. I hope so too, man. I hope so too. I just thought it was adorable. He was all nervous about it. I'm like, dude, we're just having beers. <laughs> He's gonna I, don't, I don't know that I've ever seen Lance nervous. Yeah, it was funny. It was funny. And he's just like, I was like, yeah. oh, it's Gina. Hello, Walking Gina. through, walking through. You're in the common areas, so. <laughs> <laughs> Making noise in the background. How are you? I'm good. I sat in the kitchen for as long as I could. <laughs> I love taking over the house. It's the best. Anyway, um, so Pizzagate. Uh, where's it playing? Because th- this episode is going to, we're going to drop this episode today. Are tickets available to the public if they want to come down? They are, yeah. So this will be uh, Dances with Films. It's this coming Tuesday, June 27th, 5 p.m., the Fusion Shorts Block 2. Okay. Uh, tickets are on sale, Dances with Films. Uh, you can go to their website. Uh, I assume there'll be some sort of link. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. I can get everything set up for that. And yeah, it'll be. Uh, It'll be showing there. This will be its premiere. It'll be part of a shorts block, so there'll be a bunch of other things playing that I'm sure will be great. Mm-hmm. Um, haven't seen any of them yet, but I'm very excited to. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, Chinese theaters in LA. Anybody who's in the LA area, it's so come cool. check it out. So cool that you're playing at the Chinese theater. I'll be there. Hey, are you gonna come? Yeah. Gino will be there. So there's a lot of Gina fans that listen to the show. Oh are you ready to meet some of the crazy fans if they show up? No. No. <laughs> You're too easy. <laughs> um, I'm excited for you, dude. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's really exciting. You know, I mean, I flew out for this, which is great. I get to hang out with you and, mm-hmm. you know, hang out with a bunch of friends as well uh, in L.A. And, and see it in a theater. And, and this actually something that it's been a really long time. Mm-hmm. I haven't been on the festival circuit in about six years. I mean, partially due to the pandemic, but partially due to the fact that I haven't finished anything. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, I mean, this will be the first time I've screened something with an audience in a while. And, you know, this is something that I know you've talked about on the show is that's one of the most exciting things you can do um, and just see where did, you know, where did things succeed? Where did they not succeed? What's everybody's reaction? What's the questions? What's the walk away? I mean, we, we've, we've shown this to family and friends and you know, a couple other people just to get initial reactions and feedback. But this will be one of the first times showing it to strangers. And it's, I think that that's really exciting. Dude, it is, man. And it's it, it's good to hear that that's your perspective because there are so many people that can't sit in the theater. Do you get nervous when you screen it in front of an audience that you don't know? Uh, sometimes yes, sometimes no. Uh, it kind of depends. I mean, this is the first time this has been shown to an audience. So yes, I anticipate being nervous. <laughs> nervous, yeah. Yeah, because you don't know what to expect. I mean, some of the other projects that I've finished... You, you know, you've seen it with an audience a few times and you have an anticipation of where people are either going to laugh or get nervous or they're going to be on board or, you know, and when that kind of lines up across screenings, that's super exciting. Like, oh, I think, I think people are going to laugh now because yeah, this yeah, was funny and it, yeah. it paid off. But when you haven't done it before you know, with a new project, you don't know what the reaction is going to be. And then also, this is a genre that I uh, have never done before. That's true. So it's not something that, you're not, re- you're not relying on a lot of the uh, same sort of tricks that we rely on when you do horror stuff all the time. Right, exactly. And it's yeah. based on a true story. I haven't done that before. And I think that that's, 
that's going to be very interesting. There's going to be there's a question and answer afterwards, and I mean, there's going to be questions that I don't I don't know what to expect. Yeah. Have so you, you, it's good. Have you done your homework on the event? Make sure that you're. Well, I mean, I certainly hope so, but I'm I'm confident <laughs> there's going to be a question that I'm going to be asked that I don't know the answer to. Yeah. Because because it's it's going to happen. I I feel like, um, which of course is potentially you know that that adds to the nervousness of it, but. <laughs> It's going to be horrible. <laughs> no, no, it's just going to be fun. It's going to be fun. I mean, I think that some of the nerves are fun and that's it's the it's the uncharted territory and I think that the uncharted territory it's fun, it's exciting and you know, would be kind of boring if it was just the same thing over and over again. So, yeah, yeah, and but you've also screened with this festival before. You know the level of quality. Yeah. The only times that I really got nervous um well, when I was younger, I got nervous all the time. But as I got older and I screened more, I would just get nervous at the quality at the fucking festival. Like, yeah. I've been in some festivals where, like, you put it in, the sound sounds like shit, and the visuals look like shit, and you're just like, fuck, man. Like, you, you're you're starting this piece, and it's just, this is everybody's first impression is your bullshit fucking AV department? God damn it. But yeah. that, that was, you know, we had a real bullshit screening in Boston of uh, 12KM, and I don't mind blowing them up. It was a Boston International Film Festival. It isn't the big one. It was the other one that was pretending to be the big one. They charged big bucks for tickets. It was like $20 a person for tickets. I filled that fucking theater because it was my hometown. So I filled that theater with everybody in there. And then they, they had like a fucking sheet hanging and like some bullshit. Like it was like they were running candlelight through fucking film frames. Like it was horrible, dude. And we're in there just. And the. The thing that was awful is that you're in a shorts program. And that's the other thing that's fascinating is like you screen in a program of shorts and you have no idea the quality of the other shorts that you're going to be screening with. And you have no idea the placement of your piece emotionally and the adventure run of it. And, um, you know, I've I've screened in some shorts programs that are amazing. I've, I, I screened in front of, uh, I don't know if you ever saw, it was a horror movie called The Editor that came out years ago. And it was sort of like a, a yellow uh, remake of uh, this film about it was it was kind of like Blowout with uh, John Travolta, but it was about this this guy who was an editor who witnesses a murder and yeah. And I screened I forget what movie I screened in front. It might have been Moped Nights. We screened in front of that, and that was a fucking amazing screening because the the, the pairing was great. But this festival that screened Twelve Cam. And I'm not talking shit, but the, the shorts that were before it were just really hard to get through. Really hard to get through. And because 12 Cam was 30 minutes long, we closed the show. And so it was like and almost like 45 minutes of like tough watch for an audience. And then the AV fucking sucked. And then that's the audience that starts in your movie. It's just pure exhaustion and like pissed off. So uh, like... There is this mix, and I, that's kind of my fear of playing in choice programs because of that experience is like, fuck, what else am I screening with? How is that setting it up for the audience? And, and is it going to sound good? But Yeah, I mean, I certainly hope it does. I wasn't nervous. <laughs> yeah, but uh, you've, you've screened at this festival before. I have, yeah, and the last uh, screening experience was incredible. Um, so they, I mean, they screen everything DCP, you know, digital cinema package, which is great. That's great. Um, but I haven't screened this one in a theater yet. And actually I was very lucky for the, some of the previous shorts I've done. I was able to screen them in a theater before actually doing it for the first time. So I knew that it worked and I knew everything was calibrated. 
So this will be the first theatrical experience. And I also, I just, I haven't had the time or availability to screen this in a theater previously. So, you know, I, I have very high faith in the festival itself, but I will internally be nervous for it because I haven't <laughs> seen it in a theater yet. Well, I mean, and a lot of people don't realize what a fucking challenge it is to actually master things for theatrical experiences because every theater is different. Yeah. Every room's different. Uh, me and Tran, who did the mix on the new movie, Come Home, he also did the mixes on uh, my past films. So he did the mix on 12 Cam and stuff. And when we first did a mix on 12 Cam, we really, it's really hard to, to get a definitive um, technical standard. It's really hard to find it. And most uh, of the old mixers and the old sound mixers, they, they kind of keep their fucking shit close to their chest and they're like, oh, we're not going to really tell you. And there's all these different rules of like, you shouldn't be above like, you know, for theatrical, I think it was like 14 dB, but then there's like the loudness meter and there's a specific thing with the loudness meter. And then, so when we did the original mix for 12 cam, we were kind of floundering through it and we're trying to figure it out. And I had test screened it before I did that night for the Coolidge and I had test screened it in the Coolidge and I was like, it sounds so fucking soft, man. It sounds so fucking soft. And so Mike was like, well, boost it. And we went back and we boosted it. And we brought the levels way the fuck up. And then we went back into that theater again and tested it. And it was just fucking blowing out the speakers. And we're like, oh, my God, it's blowing out the speakers. So the we were trying to find it without knowing what the technical standards were. And we came up with something that was pretty good. Um, but then when we did this piece, Mike's been mixing now for years and and he had to convince me, he's like, look, all your highs shouldn't be higher than, I forget what it was, it was like 12 dB or something. And I'm like, that's really fucking low. And he goes, yeah, but that's where it should be. And I go, it just feels really fucking low. And I, and I go, let's just download the latest Transformers trailer and let's put the latest Transformers trailer in there. And so I watched the Transformers trailer and it was all clipping right where he said. And I went, Jesus Christ. And he goes, yeah, now it's where it's supposed to be. He's like, if you mix there, then you can always crank the levels when you're in the theater, right? But that's like a decent level that's not going to distort or blow out the audio. And my whole notion has always been like, hit him with a fucking face. Like, it's always the way they do it. So it, 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 did you like? Did you find, who did your mix for you? Who did your sound mix? Uh, shout out to Angelo Panetta at Panetta Studios in New Jersey. Nice. Uh, he's mixed all of the shorts that I've done, and he is fantastic oh, so absolutely good. fantastic um and th- you know this is what he does for a living yeah so you know uh, i got introduced to him a while back and i've used him on everything he actually also did the music for pizza gate original music by angelo nice man um and he is fantastic oh dude so cool and you know he's he's very communicative and you know we just we've been able to go back and forth on a lot of the projects and you know he has he knows what he's doing, and he also has a strong opinion coming in as a collaborator. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's unbelievably valuable, mm-hmm. because we can back and forth about things, and I'm, I made changes to the edit based on some of his, his suggestions and things that he was coming up with in the mix. Mm. You know, and we'd be going through things, and he's like, okay, things sound really good here, this is working here. And like, we hit a point later in the short, I mean, the whole thing's only six minutes long, but we hit a point... And we couldn't figure out how to hit a certain emotional beat about four minutes in. Mm-hmm. And it just wasn't working. And we thought we could pull it off in the mix. And it it just wasn't making sense. And we actually went back. And I went back to the editors. And I said, I, 
I think we need to recut this a little bit because I thought we were going to be able to make this work in the mix and in the sound with the music, and it's it's not landing in the way that we think that it should. And we actually went back and we opened up the edit and we changed a couple small things towards the end, and now it works in the way that we hoped that it would. That's rad, dude. Yeah, I mean, there's something really fun about um, being in a position because that was the big thing that we did on Come Home because I because we were in the middle of all this bullshit that we had been dealing with for the past two years. Um, I was able to just shoot stuff, see stuff, look at it and go, oh, because I shot it out back. I'll just do another reshoot, shoot stuff, do new stuff. And the same thing with the edit while we're cutting it. I was cutting uh, most of that piece. And then it was like, we should do something in an underwater tank. So then we went and did the underwater tank, which then shifted the special effects. And then we were doing all of the reversal special effects later. It was really fun to piecemeal a movie together that way because you're cutting it, you're feeling it, you're viewing it, and they're going like, if I had a shot of this claw, like, tapping, that's fucking... And then suddenly we go grab the glove, which I'll show you I have those gloves. Go grab the glove, and then we just... Since I shoot most of the stuff, I just go set it up and then tap, 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 throw it in, and you go, fuck, that's cool. And then that becomes something really rad. I love that, man. I, I wish that... It's just not financially feasible to do that with, like, a feature film. But I wish that that's the world that you could be in with a feature where you're just building it and cutting it and building it and cutting it. You know? Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, with Angelo, it's one of those things that at this point, since I've used him for the last couple of projects, I will actually start reaching out to him before we're even shooting. Smart. And say, hey, look, there's this project that's coming up. I just want you to know about it. These are some of my ideas. And, you know, we'll sometimes go back and forth on things before the edit's done, before everything's shot. And we'll bounce ideas back and forth, and some of it makes it in and some of it doesn't, but being able to have that dialogue in advance just provides another set of input yeah. where you can kind of look at things like, oh, well, I think that's going to work, or I never thought of it this way, or, you know, just that extra degree of collaboration has been invaluable. Yeah, I love it, man. I love all that shit. I love I love sound work. It's one of my favorite things to do is like the sound work and sound editing. And I do a lot of that in my own edit. But then when I get to collaborate with people, I'm like, let's go out and record this. Let's go out. Like I, I hear the sound of these chains doing this. Let's go record that. I love that. And then, you know, even down to the mix, which this time around we had a lot of fun with, which was it was all about deciding what points of the movie had the peak. And understanding, like, we built our, like, our normalcy level of sound. Like, here's the level of sound that most people will be dialing in. If they watch this at home, they'll dial in their volume to hear the sound here. So that's the basis of it. Okay, now where do I play? Because if I, if I, if I set that level here, when the door slams, that could be here. Which you think is the loudest sound in the movie, but I still have all this headroom. So then when the door slam, it's here. But when he screams, it's up here. It's like a two decibels higher. And so that was fun, actually. It, it's, I think it's a bit easier to do when you're doing a short because then, you know, our piece, I forget how long it is, like 12 minutes or something. You can literally just see it and you see the peaks and valleys and you go, okay, I want it to be the loudest when the sound cue happens here and I want this to be the softest and I want someone to actually start to crank it up. And when they crank it up, then I hit them in the fucking face. And so it's fun, dude. It's fun. I love it, man. It's a lot of fun. Um, and actually interesting, and I had never done this before in the long litany of things that I'd never done before going into Pizzagate is one of the things that we had to do to keep the crew small, uh, we had no onset sound. 
<laughs> there's there's no dialogue. Oh, um, right, right, right. So there was there was nothing that we felt like we needed to get at the time. And in order to keep again keep the crew small, keep the crew safe, um, we had no onset sound. So one of the things with Pizzagate is the entire mix was created in post. All of it, every single thing. So again, something I'd never done before. So that means with Angelo and with the editors, everything we had to do was manufactured, mm-hmm. you know, all of the foley, mm-hmm. you know, all of the sound design, all of it. You know, there there was nothing that we took from the production. I mean, you know, this particular piece, it was possible. Mm-hmm. And I knew that in advance. So like we knew what we were getting ourselves into. But that's, again, something that I had not done before. And, you know, it was it was an education. And with my own personal projects, I usually try to do something on each individual one that I don't know what I'm doing because otherwise I'm not learning. Learning, yeah. You're not building um, something, yeah. And that, and that was, again, it was, a, it was a whole nother experience to build it. That's so cool, man. And then uh, were you building for reality with your sound or were you, what, did it become surreal? Was it... Because I find that... I find that building reality is tougher than doing surreal stuff. Yeah, it's a, it's a little bit of a mix. Um, without giving too much away, it, it starts realistic and gets surreal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and yeah, exactly. I mean, that that was making things sound realistic was much harder yes. than making things, you know, sound strange. Yes. And it's, it's funny, the uh, level of detail that uh, most people don't have... What, all it sometimes all it takes is just background noise. All it takes is room tone. All it takes is uh, just sort of uh, setting a, a sense of normalcy. With it could just be as simple as birds chirping in a tree. It could be as simple as like a dishwasher running in the background. There's always like that one sound effect that you pull in and you go, "I buy it." And it's it's funny how sparse it can be, where it's just like there's a dishwasher running in the background, and then make sure that I have specific hits. When someone moves and touches things, those specific things. Sure. Well, and another thing when it comes to buying it, here's something that we also ran into. Um, what The main vehicle, um, as as per reality, um, in the short is a Prius. <laughs> which, um, sounds, which sounds like nothing. <laughs> exactly. So one of the things we ran into in the mix, which I found absolutely fascinating, was you can't use the sound of a Prius. Yeah. Because it's almost nothing. But if you do that to your ear, it sounds wrong. Yeah. So we actually had to make it up and, and create car noise and create wheel whisper and do all these things that really wouldn't be there in reality because to your ear, as you're watching it, it feels unnatural. So even going into and creating you know, the quote-unquote real portion of the sound mix, again, because it was all from scratch— you have to add things and uh, you know change things in order for an audience member to not get distracted. Distracted, yeah. Be, you know, even though it's different than what the reality would be. And it's, <clears throat> I think it's because I spent so much time working with sound dudes in my first studio when I started that I think about these things. And it's fascinating you say that because I never really thought about a Prius. But as you were talking, in my mind, I'm like. All right, so most Prius sounds is either wind or tire noise. Like, that's a big part of what it is. But then there's a piece of me that's like, I would prop out that car so that there was a jingle or a jangle or a rattle or a move, and then we see that prop, whether it's keys that are moving on the thing or... Oh, yeah, we, we definitely did that. Yeah, yeah, because then you, then you have that rhythm, and then it sets that tone and that... 
it's almost like there needs to be like this rhythmic loop for sequences for the audience to go like, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. And I find that whenever I'm laying in um, uh, room tones, I'm always looking for that. I'm looking for some sort of loop or some sort of rhythm that isn't distracting, but it's, it's almost like, um, it's almost like putting in a low percussion section for a song where it's just and it's just sort of running in the background and then the audience becomes accustomed to it and oftentimes i'll this is getting really fucking nerdy but oftentimes what i'll do is i'll start to overlay that in before i get into a sequence so like um i think one of the coolest movies for uh driving noises i don't know if you remember this movie it was a film called sneakers I've seen it. It's been a long time. I don't know that I could recall the soundtrack. So it was like, it was, uh, uh, wasn't it Dan Aykroyd? It was River Phoenix before he died. And it was, I feel like it was like Robert Redford or some like attractive guy who was the lead in that. And there was this sequence where someone gets thrown in the trunk of a car and they recorded the audio or something inside the trunk of the car. And so then they were playing back the different sounds of the road so it was like dun, 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 dun. and they could tell when it was like uh you know grates on a bridge and they were sort of building out where the vehicle went based upon the sounds yeah, i think they went over train tracks or something if i remember correctly but so it's cool. been a long time so cool it was like a cool fucking sequence and whenever i'm sound designing i'm always thinking about that sequence i'm always thinking about those rhythmic noises that's a great movie for it and uh the conversation is a great fucking movie for it with Gene Hackman and uh, well, I mean, and as you have already mentioned, Blowout and Blowout. That's right. I even mentioned today. Yeah, yeah, Blowout too. I love fucking sound design, man. It's the coolest, especially when we do horror shit because horror shit is not fucking scary until you do your sound. Yeah, at all. Like you just watch it and you go, "Cool." There's a guy walking down the hall and you hear him breathing and he opens the door. <laughs> <laughs> well, I always feel like it's one of the first times when you get the sound design in. Like, so you have your rough cut, and I mean, I don't know anybody that's not traumatized by their first rough, oh, rough cut. Every time. Um, but then when you start putting in the sound design, it's kind of one of the first times for me that I feel like the project is taking on its own life. It's beyond what we shot on set. Um, it's really coming into its own uh, of the way that I thought it was going to come together. Um, and I think that that is always very, very exciting. Mm-hmm. When, the, when those pieces that could never have been there on the day, um, when, they, when they start finding their, you know, their way into the piece, you go, ah, okay, we're getting a little bit warmer. Getting a little bit warmer here. And I, and I feel like, for me, that happens very often with the first mix. I love it, man. And it... And it it's in my mind now it's so ingrained the same way that visuals are ingrained so will and i are working on a new piece i think we've talked about i'm not going to spoil anything but we were talking i was sending him some art and i was explaining a sequence that i want and in my head more than the visuals is the sound specific sound because i've done a lot of yard work i've done a lot of construction work the specific sound of a chainsaw that is just bad it's got bad oil in it and it's just and that noise is the motivation for the entire sequence is that fucking noise and so what i want to do before we do the movie is actually go record all those bits and pieces for that so that i have it and you know 
I see that or I hear that noise before it shoots, but then my goal is to have that noise be the noise that you hear at a midnight screening somewhere when they open the door and you're late to the screening and you just hear this fucking noise just pounding you from in the theater. Or even better, you hear it through the walls of your neighboring theater. Oh, I mean, I remember dude. that as a kid. What are they watching over Next there? <laughs> yeah. yeah, man. So fucking excited about that. But yeah, I love sound. I love sound. It's I've like I, I I was just talking on a, one of the Instagram live sessions with someone, and they asked like, if you weren't directing, what a, what other part of the business would you do? And I have spent time doing cinematography, but I, you know, if I go blind, I'd be a sound guy. I'd be fucking pumped about it. It'd be awesome. It would force me to be a good sounding sound guy. Well, as as a non sponsored plug, I actually just saw. They, there's a um, there's a feature. It's called Making Waves: The Like Evolution of uh, Cinematic Sound. Oh, what is this? Yeah, it's it's a feature that came out oh, maybe 2019. Um, it's relatively recent, but it goes over the history of cinematic sound and you know how it started with mono stereo was developed, surround sound, um, and it's it's interesting. It's very very cool. Highly recommended. Um, making it, waves. Making waves. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Not, not, not a sponsor. No, of course. <laughs> well, spe- speaking of sponsors, let's do some sponsor reads right now. How are we doing on time? We're doing good. Um, all right. So I'm just going to do them off the top of my head. Uh, sit through these with me, Stu. Uh, let me do uh, some music cue here. I'm doing everything live today, everybody. Let's see. As you do this live, I do have to say, in the, in the 200 episodes that have gone by since I was here, this, the setup is much more sophisticated than your attic i think that was the last time no <laughs> that i was on the show well it's nicer right you get yeah. to come into our giant studio yeah you had to I, we moved one of the lamborghinis so that you could park your car that's it, true yeah it was nice for you yeah you left the other one there though but yeah. yeah of course well that was the one i wanted to show off yeah <laughs> <laughs> and i i make all this money off of sponsors so i get all the lambos it's great <laughs> yeah we're actually recording from inside a bentley yeah <laughs> All right, so Park, parked in Mike's living room. Yeah, so for those of you who listen to the show regularly, you know what time it is. It's time for uh, to show some love to the sponsors of the show to talk about some of the gear that I use. I am literally sitting in front of right now my Puget system, which is up and running. I've been on this fucker. We have to talk about this stuff. I've been on this thing uh, all week, just running out AI art. Um, for these pitches. Look at this stuff, man. Wow. Yeah, it's amazing. So if you're in the business right now and you want to get your hands on a new computer, maybe you want to do some AI artwork, maybe uh, you want a new editor, um, I highly suggest you buy yourself a PC, man. With PCs, they're upgradable. You have the ability to um, uh, get hardware that works specifically for you. You're not paying for the unboxing experience that comes with a Mac. And I get it, man. If you are out there, you have an ass load of money and you're like, I just want to buy a Mac and I want to be able to use a computer for about two years and then have to throw it out because it's out of date, then sure, go ahead. If you're like, if you're someone that wants to add to that trash pile that's off the fucking coast of California, then why not do that, man? You could throw it out there with your fucking phone, you know? Or you could buy yourself a PC. I have a Puget system here in front of me. The one that Gina's using over there, we've had for at least eight years. Uh, they're upgradable and I did the hard work. I found Puget Systems, a family owned company on the West Coast. And these guys and girls over there really love customer service. They really give a shit about creators. 
Um, I will write them an email when there's some new software update that's fucked up my system. And I'm like, guys, what's going on? They go, don't worry, here's a patch, here's a plug. It's a great resource for you. They're, and I'm telling you, you talk to real people. It's not like you're on some sort of text thread and someone's like, in three days from now, we'll give you a fucking text with your answer. You know what I mean? These are real folks. PugetSystems.com. Go there, check them out. And uh, you can put together a base level machine based upon the software you use. So if you're using Premiere, maybe using Resolve, everybody seems to be making the jump to Resolve for editing. I have not done so yet, um, but uh, I do use Resolve for color grading and it's fun. Um, and if you guys are curious about what my specs are on my Puget system, I run 6K real time, multiple, t multiple tracks video. Uh, just write to Puget Systems and say, hey, What's the computer Mike has? Can I build one better? And then when you do build one better, brag about it. Send me a, you know, send me a picture and tell me that my system is insufficient. <laughs> um, also supporting the show are friends over at Fujifilm. Uh, I just got an email yesterday. We're going to do a bunch more Fujifilm uh, creator series episodes of the show. Uh, they have a bunch of really great short films that they have helped finance and helped put together. Uh, and one of the things I love about Fuji is they give a shit about us as storytellers. Um, we're working with them on the show. I think Gene is going to be working with them on a project later in the year. Um, and I am continuously using their cameras and shooting their stuff. Their, their HX2S, uh, their video camera is fucking phenomenal. I'm shooting ProRes with it all the time. Uh, and then I'm actually able to put on my photo deox adapters. So I have adapters that will adapt my Nikon lenses to the Fujifilm. I also have PL mount adapters where I can put really cool uh, anamorphic lenses. That's what we did uh, with the new shorts. We actually shot with um, Atlas. So we used their Orion series. Have you used any anamorphic stuff lately? Uh, no, not lately. I mean, I used them for some of my previous shorts, but yeah, um, the new, not, the new not, not for Pizza Game. The new Atlas stuff is pretty cool. Have you seen their new? I think it's their Mercury series that's coming out. You sent me some stuff. I think when you went to go test them out, did you test them with Rick Darge? Yes, yes. Yeah, so you sent me some of that stuff, but no, I mean, I haven't seen it in person. But I know Crude is trying to get a set. I yeah. know he'll have a set. Yeah, they're pretty rad, man. They're beautiful lenses. Um, and, uh, if you, uh, want to mount that stuff to your Fujifilm body, this is what I like about Fujifilm and I'll be transparent because I am on this show. If I'm doing a larger piece, oftentimes I'm shooting at a, a larger format camera. So for the new piece we shot with the Airy mini LF, which was great for file storage is a fucking bitch though. I have like 12 gigabytes of solid state hard drives that are full for a short film with that it's a yeah. it's insanity uh so we shot with the mini lf um but then uh when i do pickups or if i do my macro shots um i don't need that big package i don't want that big package and so having a camera like fujifilm and having the ability to put the same fucking lenses that I put on the Mini LF and put them on the Fujifilm camera to do my inserts, to do essentially my second unit for it. Um, it's very useful for that. And I also like having that camera sitting with me in my arsenal. So that way, if I am inspired or if I want to go shoot some tests or if I want to go to a space, it's also a great rig if you're going to go in and use it as a viewfinder. 
if you're going to go do tech scouts and stuff like that, which is really fucking fantastic. You can get your hands on those specific lenses. And instead of having to get the whole fucking package, you can just have this little handheld rig and shoot tests with it. It's really great. There's so many great options with it. Uh, I definitely uh, suggest you check out the links below in the description of the episode for Fujifilm. And I know a lot of you out there want to get your hands on some new Fujifilm stuff, but like everybody right now, because of the writer's strike, we're all unemployed. Everybody's worried about when income is coming from. Uh, check out their refurbished link that I have below. You never know when a camera body goes up there at a real discounted rate, or more importantly, that lens that you've wanted is up there. All right. So Fujifilm, Photo Deox, I gave you guys a plug. Check them out. Photo Deox, that is F O T O. D-I-O-X, Photo Deox. Um, that is a place to go for adapters. They, do, they just don't adapt to Fujifilm. They can adapt to any camera, um, and it changes the game. And what's cool about some of the adapters is built into the adapter, there is ND. Depends on the model that you get. So specifically, you can get your hands on an ND lens adapter, which will then enable you on a camera that normally doesn't have built-in ND to close down uh, your exposure to a rate where outside you're now using your very low ISO, or not low, but low T-stop lenses as shallow as possible because you now have the ND between the lens and the body, which is great. We were talking about Army of the Dead. He was shooting with uh, incredibly low um, aperture lenses and his depth of field on that series was just super fucking minute paper thin yeah paper thin outside that must have been insane the focus pullers (laughs) (laughs) poor guys (laughs) um but you can recreate that stuff uh on cameras that don't normally have nd in them by getting one of these adapters that has this nd and a really fascinating byproduct of using an nd in an adapter is that often you'll get this weird sort of ghosting and light leak that happens so you'll get these plumes that happen around windows or large sources that almost look like you're using a hazer or a smoke machine so a lot of fun things to do check out photo deox uh, and play around with the stuff and many of you have been asking how gina has been getting her looks on her new photography She's shooting with the Fujifilm GFX 100S, and she has a Photo Deox adapter, which enables her to mount old-school Mamiya large format lenses to that camera. And because of how the adapter works, the distance between the body and the lens, that lens that normally would have a minimum focus of about five feet now has a minimum focus of about two feet or even one foot because of the distance. Um, and so that's how she's able to get like this very cool, creamy, weird fucking look by mixing new tech and old tech. So like I say all the time, fucking they're just tools, beat them up, use them, fucking throw them in the trash, take them out, use them again. You know what I mean? Um, let's see, we got them. Oh, also, if you are in the market for lenses, uh, and you can't afford to buy all these super sexy lenses because I sure as shit can't. Uh, I highly suggest you make a relationship with your local rental house. And if you're in Los Angeles, the guys over at Boca Rentals are the shit. I love these guys. The past two projects I did, I got all of my gear from them. The B. Miller stuff that we uh, just shot with Gina, we got all the gear from them with that. And I have been appreciating the listeners of the show that have been going to Boca Rentals and sending me images. 
I had a guy last week send me photos like, guess where I'm at right now? And he's hanging out of Boca. So I'm proud to be sending you guys there. I've been hearing from Boca that we've been sending you guys there. Um, it, it's a great company. They really support young cinematographers and they love young filmmakers. So I can't say enough great things about Boca Rentals. Check them out on Instagram and check them out on their website. Great resource. I'm giving you guys all my secrets, man. Enjoy. All right. Let's do a sound cue and then we'll come right back. Here we are back. Uh, Stu and I were just talking about the lens adapter stuff. And we were talking about uh, how you can mix formats in a specific piece and the audience won't be able to tell the difference. Hopefully not. Yeah, most likely. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, they've never been able to tell a difference in my stuff. Like in 12 cam, you guys would know that uh, I shot with an Airy Mini for the main stuff using uh, Kruda's Russia Lomo Square, square fronts, fronts which you guys used on uh, grim yeah. as well and then uh on uh 12 cam i also shot with a nikon d80 or d800 which was 1080 and we blew that up we also shot with like this weird sony rig for all the stuff that was through the um, magnifying glass stuff and the microscope stuff that was all sony and then i feel like we shot with a black magic and Really, through the power of of uh, color grading, you really can't tell the difference. Like people will go, "Oh, that's this." You go, "No, that's not. That's the area." Or, oh, that's this. And this was something I learned years and years ago when I was doing music videos. And back in the days when uh, MTV was still up, and we were doing low budget metal music videos that would go on Headbangers Ball, and we did a video for, I think it was like Ramallah. Or like one of those dudes, or maybe it was Agnostic Front, and we shot on mini DV with uh, lens adapter, early lens adapter, which had like rotating glass. I don't know if you remember them, but you would mount it to the front of a video camera, and it had the spinning glass that went in the adapter that you could then mount uh, a cinema lens to, and that lens would project onto the spinning glass, and then that camera would pick it up. Um, we shot that mini DV and we were hearing from everybody like all the music videos that you're going to be screening with are being shot 60 millimeter, 35 millimeter. Um, you know, your thing's going to look like shit up there. And we put it on headbangers ball and no one knew the fucking difference. Yeah. Well, I mean, also you can do it 
intelligently by design. Like if you're going for a specific look or, yeah. you know, like for example, what you were talking about with 12KM, if you have different sequences that are specifically shot with different cameras that can intercut, I mean, if you do it, you know, purposefully, then yeah. also that helps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a there's a sense of that. But I think, that, like, in the new piece, we did, um, and some of it kind of sticks out, but we shot uh, a whole sequence with Lance that I just shot with the Black Magic because I didn't have anything else, and he was here, and we just went out. Um, and I had to color grade it, but it's beautiful. It still fits. Yeah. I, I don't think you'd notice the difference. Who who cares? And if you do, who cares? <laughs> if, you, if you can tell, then you're not sucked into the narrative anyway. Yeah, who cares? And it, like, it's it's my shit. You show it up. It's my thing. You know, this is how I cook my meals. So eat it. <laughs> <laughs> um, Did you cut the crust off the peanut butter sandwich? Yeah. <laughs> Um, the, let's see, what else did I have to do for homework? Oh, yeah. This was something else, too. We were talking about comic books. Um, as you know, I guess I am sort of a influencer for Image Comics, which is cool. Uh, it's like a kid dream come true. They send me comic books in the mail every month. And by the way, Image, when you send me comic books, they put... You put them in a bag, and then you put them in another bag, and you put them in a box. The amount of fucking waste that you guys do when you ship me stuff, it's insane. Um, I just read this book. It's an uh, advanced reader copy, which I'm excited about. Uh, it's a trade, and it's uh, Cosmic Detective. Um, and uh, let me just make sure that I get this right. It's written by uh, Jeff Lemire, Matt Kint. Um, and, uh, it is lettered and drawn by David Rubin and it's fucking really great. It's, uh, the character in it, I can totally see being played by the rock, believe it or not. And, uh, it's about this detective, uh, trying to figure out, uh, a murder. And there are this, there's this species of, uh, beings that they allude to being more powerful than humans. And it's, this interesting story about realizing how small we are in the universe. Um, I would definitely check it out when it comes out. Uh, the illustrations are fucking fantastic. The artwork's really great, especially in a time period where most comic book artists, uh, you feel like they're just sort of phoning it in. And in a time period where a lot of books that are being published with image right now, you feel like that uh, people are just trying to put them out quickly because it's a way to get movies made. Well, as I peer over your shoulder, the art the art does look really yeah, cool. Yeah, you can take a look at it. Here you go. So, yeah, so for the next 20 minutes, we're going to read this. Yeah, uh, page that, one. That, that, that page one. <laughs> um, but it's a great book. Uh, and when, I, when it does come out, Cosmic Detective, definitely check it out. And this week, to sort of catch you guys up on what's going on, two days ago, um, I went to uh, a great... A signing and a free show with Patton Oswald. Oh, very cool. Yeah. Over here in um, Glendale, there is a comic book store called Revenge Of, which is cool. It's like this really fun shop that is pinball machines, comic books. It's owned uh, by two production designers, which is cool. And they did this whole uh, big premiere for his new book. It's called Minor Threats, I think is what the name of the book was. Um, and Patton was there. He was signing books. They had barbecue. That was one of the reasons why I got pulled in. Said so there was a bunch of really good barbecue. Um, they said barbecue, and I was this there. Brett invited me. Our buddy Brett, who's been on the show, Brett McCabe, um, and I went down there. Who else was? It was Patton. It was um, 
Oh my god, what's the the big comedian, the big fucking dude that's got the deep voice? He's Patton's buddy. Oh my god, it just went right out of my head. He was in um, a lot of Rob Zombie stuff. I think he was in House of Thousand Corpses. And not Matt Pinfield. I keep thinking Matt Pinfield, but he's uh, Headbanger's Ball. Oh, it'll come to me. But it was great. There was a, a really good comedy uh, set by Patton, who was telling jokes about his daughter... And his daughter was there. And so it was very awkward. His daughter is in like seventh grade. And so, and he was making note on stage. He's like, all my set is about you. So you're going to have to listen to this. And so it was really fun to see her reactions to him talking about her. Um, it was a really fun fucking night. So if you guys haven't seen the book, it's out on Dark Horse. Um, and uh, it's Minor Threats that just came out. And uh, Patton's a really cool fucking dude, man. He's a cool guy. Yeah, I'm a big fan of his stand-up, so I'll have to check that out. Dude, it's so cool. I have, uh, I'll have i show you some video I have of it. So we did that, and then uh, recently uh, was invited to the new movie um, from the guy who directed The Room. Oh, uh, what, a big shark or something? something yes, like that? yes, Tommy Wiseau. I haven't talked about it officially on the show. We were kind of mentioning it, but uh, my buddy Rick Darge, who's also been on the show, um rick knows tommy of course he does yes. of all the people of course he does <laughs> yes and so if you guys go back and listen to the rick darge episode which is probably prior to episode 100 um maybe it's maybe it's after but uh he comes on and talks a bit about his experiences with tommy and he had uh, spent some time helping tommy shoot some stuff if you watch the room right now, I think uh, Rick just confirmed this that he is the last credit on the credits. So when you watch the room, he's he's on the credits of that. And um, uh, he called me up and he goes, uh, "Do you want to go see Tommy's new movie?" It was like last minute. Send me a thing. He goes, "Do you want to go see?" It? I go, "Yeah, yeah," because I know about his history with Tommy. <laughs> I know about his history with Tommy. And I go, "This is gonna be fucking fascinating, right?" So we go down to uh, I think it's like Westfield or. Wherever the theater is, um, that's from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood when uh, uh, What's-Her-Name, who plays Sharon Tate, goes into the theater and watches her stuff. It was right there. And uh, we go down there, and there's this line outside the place. And uh, and so we get in the line, and we talk to the dude in front of us, super nerds waiting in this line, young kids. And uh, he goes, this is the line, you have to, you have to own merch, or you have to buy merch to get in this line. And I'm like, you got to buy merch to see the fucking movie? And he goes, well, you have to have merch to get in this line. And so we're standing there going, uh-huh. And uh, this person comes out and they go, well, you can go into the theater if you don't have merch, but this is just for him to sign it. Tommy's going to come out and do the signing. And they had this, <laughs> they had this like, you know, bulletproof glass booth set up on the sidewalk outside this place. And out comes Tommy. And he's dressed the way Tommy you would expect him to be dressed. He's got like four belts around his waist. <laughs> his waist is so small that they're just like wrapped around his knees. And he's got gloves on for no reason. And he's got his dark Terminator sunglasses, even though it's like 8 p.m. And he's out there standing behind this bulletproof glass. And people are signing autographs and stuff. And uh, Rick and I tried to sneak in to get past him because of stuff that I probably shouldn't talk about on the show. But we sneak past and get into the theater. And uh, I have no idea what I'm in for. I hadn't even seen the trailer. Have you seen the trailer for it? I have. <laughs> okay. Because, because, of course, I have. <laughs> okay. 
I'm not going to spoil too much. I'm not going to spoil too much. But the movie's called Big Shark. And you go in. And now, because those of you who don't know Tommy and don't know The Room, the history of The Room is this. Tommy made a movie years ago. I think he made his money as like some sort of real estate guy. And he had a bunch of cash. And he blew about $6 million on this really low-budget, really trashy movie, terrible movie called The Room. And um, he had no distro for it. He had no distribution. And the legend is this, that out here in Hollywood, he would just play it consistently every weekend. And for over a year, he had this billboard. I forget where it was. I don't know if it was down in Hollywood proper, but he had this billboard that was always up and it said The Room on it. And a bunch of out-of-work actors, a bunch of out-of-work people would just drive by and go, what is this fucking, what is this fucking room movie? And they went to see it. Now, apparently, Tommy thought he had an Academy Award-winning film on his hands when he made this film. So the first screening, when all these folks went to see it, it was so bad that it was funny and that they laughed and they started to laugh at this movie. And it's kind of heartbreaking as a filmmaker to hear that, where you go through the process of making this this piece that you think is going to be amazing, and the movie fucking laughs at it. Um, and they do for a good reason. If you guys watch The Room, you'll understand. Um, but uh, Tommy, in his wisdom, goes, I did it intentionally. I made it funny intentionally. And he completely curves into this, and it becomes legend. And so it's almost like a Rocky Horror Picture Show out here. Where oh, I mean, everywhere. You can... At the Coolidge Corner, they used to do midnight showings. Right, that's right. So people just go, they learn the lines, they laugh about it. It's pretty insane. Rick was telling me that uh, there was a screening that he went to out here where he's watching it in the theater. All of a sudden, like at a certain portion of the movie, I don't know if it was like 15 minutes in, I can't tell you what time it was. Strangers, all these people that are in the theater stand up. And they all walk like fucking invasion of the body snatchers. They all walk over to the right-hand side of the room and they're standing there. And he's like, what's going on? And so then there's a period in the film where Tommy comes in, walks onto screen and waves to that right-hand side of the movie theater. And all those people standing wave at Tommy. That's how fucking insane it was. Oh yeah. It's a full on experience. It's insanity. And so some, some places there's a people show up with like handfuls of plastic spoons <laughs> <laughs> and while chuck spoons at the screen at certain times i know that that's now frowned upon by a lot of theaters who then have to clean up hundreds of spoons at the end of the screening but the one i went to they were still doing that and i hadn't seen it before when i saw it for the first time at a, at a midnight show and you know the person i was going with had been there a, a dozen times and handed me about a dozen plastic spoons <laughs> i had no idea what i was getting myself into but oh yeah it, it can be a blast oh so then we go to this one and there are people already wearing like kids costumes like adults that are wearing like kids shark head costumes in this thing and we watch the film it is very difficult to get through it's a very difficult movie to watch and if i wasn't in the theater with this audience um i wouldn't have enjoyed it as much as i did and the audience was uh it, i think this was the second screening of it and they already knew the lines these are re repeat viewers so they're in there like singing songs tommy has a bunch of songs in it the without giving away too much the uh story or like the log line is that tommy plays a louisiana uh firefighter who 
eventually has to try to save uh, New Orleans from a giant shark. And so watching him do sequences as a firefighter, really good. <laughs> really good. Watching them do sequences of scuba diving and underwater scuba stuff, really interesting. <laughs> Um, the movie was insane, and I'm scrubbing through my phone here because I want to pull up a clip. The best part of the whole screening was the Q&A after. Now, mind you, I think one of the reasons why I'm bringing this up, we're sitting in this theater, and uh, I'm talking to Rick, and we're just sort of like shitting on the film, right, as filmmakers. We're just sort of sitting here going like, and Rick was like, it's not even as good as the room. I go, how... The room was terrible. Like, how is this? And he goes, yeah, but he didn't know that he was making something awful. He's like, sometimes I feel like he's aware of what he's doing in this, and it makes it even worse. And and I go, dude, look around. There is a whole fucking room full of people that are completely engaged, that are saying lines, that are singing, that are screaming at the screen, that are doing things at the screen. I would kill to have an audience doing this. And they're all under the age of 30 years old. They're young kids. This is the demographic that's supposed to not be going to theaters. This is the demographic that is supposed to not like being in a theatrical experience. And this is a room full of young kids that are looking at this old guy up there and who terribly acts and they're fucking loving it. Um, so uh, it was a fun experience, man. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I'll have to see if it's screening while I'm here. You should. And... Uh, one of the best parts, and I'll show you this clip, but I'm going to play it. One of the best parts was that he did his Q&A at the end, and Tommy has this... I, he's on the spectrum. He has to be on the spectrum. And he, he doesn't understand how people communicate. He doesn't understand how to communicate with people. And so you have this lineup of young, young kids that are all there, and this one kid gets up, and he's so excited to see him. And he's like, uh, Tommy, I think you're a genius. And Tommy's like... Uh, thank you. You know, and he's like, um, I just have one question. He's like, you know, there was a sequence where uh, this happened. And um, what does that mean? And what does this whole thing mean? And Tommy, who apparently has just been, you know, ridiculed for so long, he's got his defenses up in the worst possible way. He just goes, why don't you tell me you're the professional? And the kid goes, no, 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 I'm not shitting on you. I just, I want to, he goes, no, you know everything. You know everything about movies. And everybody goes, holy shit. He goes, I'm done with you. Sit down. <laughs> Hold on. Let me see if I can play uh, one of the, the clips here. Uh, oh, yeah. This is a woman dressed, as you can see. As a shark. As a shark. And she's asking him about his workout routine, I think. Hold on, let me see if I can play this. Not to be ripped like you, so I was wondering, what's your workout routine? 20 push-ups every day. Yeah. And uh, you see all these beautiful actors, they do the same. They do exercise every day. Every day. Move on, next question. <laughs> That's how he does it. Move on, next question. It's great. If you can go see Big Shark with Tommy there, because I think he travels around with the movie a lot. It's worth it just to see Tommy. It really is. It's going on the things to do list. Yeah, I will have to look and see if it's playing out here. It was wild. I was very unfortunate to get tickets. I don't know how it happened, but uh, uh, yeah, one of the cool benefits of being out here. <laughs> but the point of the reason I bring it up was not to shit on Tommy, was just to say that I'm jealous that he has such a great 
audience and he has a group of people that love his fucking stuff so much and even though it may not have started the way he wanted where he thought he was going to be academy award-winning director doing dramas he's still making movies that are pulling people in and fucking selling and dude he made he made that movie for six million and then i heard he made 25 million on the first one just by doing like theater screenings and all that shit man personal appearances i'm sure yeah so Fucking A, man. Like, why the fuck not? I think that's wonderful. So, whatever. That's what's going on. (laughs) Strong tangent. (laughs) (laughs) That's what's going on, dude. Yeah. Um, So, we should probably wrap this up. Sure. Um, Yeah, because you got to meet our new new pets. I know. I I see the the cage. Are Are they awake over there? Are they up, Cheetah? No. Our two little rat boys? Throughout and about. It's fun, man, because I've, you know, grown up allergic to dogs and cats. I've never had, like, pets that seem to emotionally respond to you. And these little guys are pretty great. They're fun. They actually come out and they respond. And there's this whole new thing that they do, which is, like, this domination because they're two males. So they'll, like, play wrestle and they'll try to dominate each other. I've been sneaking in there while they dominate and I dominate the both of them. (laughs) (laughs) So now I am the alpha male in the group, which I love. <laughs> I don't know if I'm supposed to do that, but now, fuck it. I am dominating the both of you. What do you think, Gina? She's just shaking her head. <laughs> um, but anyway, dude, I'm happy you're here. I'm excited about Pizzagate. I can't wait to go see your screening. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me on, and I'm excited. Dude, you should be. Uh, and I'm happy you're you know putting out work and you're directing and... I know how hard it can be when you get, you know, pulled off onto these jobs and years go by and you're just like, fuck, man. So it just means I make things very, very slowly. Yeah, but it, they're good stuff, man. I've been a fan of your work for a while, so I'm excited. Thank you. All right, man. Let me wrap us out. Thanks for listening, everybody. And um, as always, I will see you next Tuesday. Fuck it. We're out of here. <laughs> <laughs>